Welcome to the 22nd episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security and Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldiers or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system, and cyber weapons. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I'm very glad today to start the new year with Callum Watson, discussing on glass ceiling and private security. Welcome, Callum. Hi, Alessandro. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure is really us. Callum Watson is currently the gender coordinator at the Small Arms Survey, where he works on the project that explores linkages between arms and control. He uh, is focusing on women, peace and security agenda, as well as supporting gender mainstream efforts. Previously, Callum worked for the Gender and Security Division at DICA, the Geneva Center for Security Sector Governance, where he was the project lead on DICA's work related to the LC Initiative for Women in Peace Operation. His work also encompasses activities on teaching gender in the military, addressing gender bias in the justice sector, and researching men and masculinities. Callum studied international relations from the London School of Economic and Political Science, and he holds a Master in International Affairs from the Graduate Institute for the International Development Study in Geneva. Callum, really thank you to being with us today. And please, let me start with our first question. Uh, I've been reading several times, I have to say, I'm very pleased with uh, the reading, the DCAF report uh, on uh, gender and private security regulation. In this report, uh, you underline how a gender perspective is essential to regulating private military and security companies. However, before getting uh, in the deep detail and deep dive on gender and private security regulation, my first question is, it's something that just we are looking at this in the West, and by West I say a very broader uh, area defining West, or this uh, uh, study can be applied to the rise of new breed of private military company. And mainly I'm looking at Russia, Turkey, or even the private security sector in China. Callum, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you, Alessandro. Yeah, so the authors of the report, Anna-Marie Birdsey and Lorraine Serrano, work extensively with partners primarily outside of the West. So they work particularly in West and Central Africa, Latin America and Timor-Leste. Uh, the research itself draws on studies from Kenya and South Africa, as well as from Western countries. And it was also co-published as part of the Gender and Security Toolkit uh, by the OSCE Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights, for which both Russia and Turkey are member states. So we might think of Russia and Turkey as skeptical countries when it comes to uh, thinking about gender perspective and gender equality. But if we were having this conversation 100 years ago, we'd be speaking of Ataturk's Turkey, home of the world's first female combat pilot in Sabiha Gotchen, um, and the Soviet Union, where social welfare minister Alexandra Kolontai was seen as a radical in the West for advocating paid childcare, parental leave, and no-fault divorce. So we might have the impression that much of the work on gender is Western, and it's true that Western terminology does dominate international discourses, but each country has its own movement, and Western countries aren't always the most progressive. When we're talking about gender insecurity at the international level, much of the policy and thinking has come about as a reaction to what happened to women in Rwanda and former Yugoslavia in the 1990s, especially when it comes to sexual violence. 
However, these same studies highlighted women as conflict actors and men as victims of sexual violence, as well as sex selective killing. So that's perhaps quite a long way of saying that every security situation does have a gender dimension. Uh, and of course, these gender dynamics vary a lot from one place to another, which is why the policy brief focuses more on what questions to ask rather than providing universal solutions. So I would say it would also apply uh, to some of these um, emerging new breed PMCs based in places like Russia and Turkey. And uh, I just take your word uh, when you mention the questions. So in our previous BOTG podcast, uh, uh, we discussed a lot with various stakeholders, uh, starting from uh, the United Nations Working Group on Mercenary, ICOCA, ISOA, on basic need, accountability and transparency to avoid negative spillover. But then uh, if you look uh, at the need for more regulation, and not only this, I see enforcing mechanism is a very important part, how a gender perspective and an increased role for women in the private military and security sector can benefit this trend toward finding positive spillover. Yeah, so let's start by talking about gender perspective. Um, women, men, girls, boys, gender minorities, they all face different kinds of security threats. Um, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, for example, UN peacekeepers saw some successes in achieving their mandate to train law enforcement officers, uh, reduce threats to public order, and prevent a return to conflict. Some pieces Peacekeepers were employed through private contractors such as DynCorp. However, women and men don't face the same kinds of threats. And while many men felt safer, it was later uncovered that peacekeepers were involved in raping underage girls and participating in sex trafficking. Clearly, this will have a long-lasting negative impact on the community. Um, perpetrators of sexual exploitation and abuse tend to target those who lack the ability to report, either because there is no mechanism or because the victims are stigmatized in society or perhaps they won't be believed. And this is why children are often targeted. These abuses have had a long lasting impact on the country, but they've also caused considerable reputational damage to DynCorp, which may be one reason why the brand has been retired um, after the company was bought by Amentum. Uh, the security analysis in Bosnia was gender blind. It mainly considered public disturbances as threats. The public spaces where men are most vulnerable, so it addressed those threats in particular, and it didn't consider crimes that would happen behind closed doors, which are those where women are most vulnerable. When it comes to positive spillovers, it helps to consider that PMSCs often offer the best employment opportunities in certain areas and to certain demographic groups, especially young people. Women and men, of course, have the right to equality in the workplace, and PMSCs can play an important role when it comes to social mobility. Furthermore, women in security-related roles are well-placed to challenge social perceptions of what women are capable of and can inspire future generations of women. And we saw this, for example, in Liberia, where female Indian police peacekeepers inspired Liberian women to join the police later on after the conflict. In addition, private security providers often guard workplaces such as hospitals, financial institutions, and IT companies. And it's important that these security providers don't threaten their female employees and male employees also from groups that traditionally face discrimination. Otherwise, there's a risk um, that their presence will contribute to furthering inequality in the society that they're supposed to serve. So having both women and men serve is a necessity when it comes to searching people, for example, but also an indication that the company, the private security company is professional and works with integrity. And there's one other element that emerged from the research led by Dr. Sabrina Karim from Cornell University and uh, DCAF was collaborating with her within the framework of the Canadian led uh, ELSE initiative on women in peacekeeping. 
They found that male police and military personnel who held discriminatory or rigid views on gender were also those most likely to commit disciplinary offences. For example, they found that those who believed that a good wife should obey her husband or that women often lie about being raped or that men make better political leaders and changing diapers are women's responsibility. People who held those views were also those who were most likely to escalate security situations by the excessive use of force to avoid reporting a drunk uh, drunk driving or sexual exploitation and abuse by their colleagues. So while we might think that sometimes it's okay to overlook these kind of sexist views of uh, PMSE personnel because they need to be able to use violence, actually we find that they're less likely to follow company regulations and more likely to become a security threat themselves. When we come back to talking about positive and negative spillovers, actually the application of a gender perspective is key to ensuring that there is a positive spillover into the, into the society where the PMSE is operating. Oh, you just mentioned the change in diaper and the machism that is related uh, to a male-only perspective. But if we are looking at something that we really need, and I mean, as you just mentioned, future generation with more women, not only in the field as boots on the ground, but also at managerial level. And we can see even CEO roles, increasing CEO roles in private security, military sector. Do you think that... Uh, that's just wishful thinking, or we have really here a chance to accomplish this kind of result. And in this, we always talk about the private sector, but then again, uh, is uh, the public sector, the state, uh, vital in enforcing, let's say, this kind of trend and, and proper regulation? I think um, there's increasing evidence that shows that increasing the role that women play in any workplace is both the right thing to do from a human rights perspective, but also the smart thing to do. There are benefits to both the state and also to private military and security companies. So states can play a role in two ways. <clears throat> Firstly, through legis legislation. The secondly is clients of private security contractors. So if they're using these private companies to perform roles that were previously performed by the state, and in which a private company is effectively representing the state. So we might think of places like airports or as peacekeepers or by protecting government installations. It made sense that they insist that these PMSCs apply the same rules and regulations that would be applied to the public sector when it comes to gender equality, for example. Uh, this could include policies um, and on reporting mechanisms uh, related to gender equality, inclusive recruitment policies, and specific training on how to respond to the security needs of women, men, girls, boys, and other gender minorities. But in terms of managerial and CEO roles, however, I think there's also a financial reason to promote gender equality. Uh, the job market is competitive. If you don't have a diverse recruitment pool because of discriminatory recruitment practices, or because the company has a reputation for a toxic work environment, the best women and men will simply work somewhere else. The military and police have already learned this. They need people with diverse skill sets and they often struggle to recruit people in areas such as interpretation, translation, IT services, and cybersecurity because women and men who don't conform to stereotypical masculine norms often don't want to work there. In addition, it's often minority groups that employ private security because they don't get sufficient protection from public security. So um, we could think about LGBTI groups around the world from the gay bars of Lebanon to Bosnia and Geneva Pride perhaps also to abortion clinics in the US. Um, if they have an option of working with a private security company that employs people like them at all levels, they will choose that private security company. 
Oh, you make again a very important case. And when we are talking about masculinity on steroids, uh, what comes into my mind is the new kind of private military companies slash almost mercenary that are operating in, in Africa. And I'm talking uh, the Wagner Group. Uh, there is, was a recent case of beheading of a Syrian prisoner that has been discussed now. Uh, or if we just go back in time, uh, not a while ago, uh, it came to my mind, uh, Blackwater, Bloody Sunday, and was the spotlight of abuse of human rights and lack of accountability. And uh, on both cases, uh, even we, we have different players, uh, because there is a recent call for justice for the, Rush, the Wagner group, including for the beheading of the Syrian prisoner, then uh, there is a quite diffuse perception that uh, there is no accountability and PMC uh, have some kind of impunity. So if we look uh, at this imperative to research the impact that non-state actors operating in the secure arena have uh, on women and girls, what do you think that are the trend moving from the private security and now looking at the private military sector? So I'm not sure I'm well placed to say whether there have been changes in what the public sees um, with regards to PMCs and having impunity, but obviously they tend to operate in areas where the rule of law is relatively weak. Um, and hence, we've seen responses through the Montreux document and the International Code of Conduct um, that have subsequently tried to reduce levels of impunity. Where a gender perspective can help is that it challenges biases we have about who is vulnerable and who is not, and thus who should be protected. So when we go back um, to the case you mentioned with the Wagner group, um, the murder of Mohammed Taha al-Ismail Abdallah by, by the, the Wagner group is a good case study for this. So the footage is shocking, but it might have been more shocking to the public if it had been a woman, because we assume that women are innocent civilians, while we might assume that the victim in this case must have done something wrong, even if he didn't deserve to be killed. But Mohammed actually was reportedly a deserter from the Syrian army. So the forced conscription of men in Syria into a conflict situation uh, where there is a high likelihood of death and serious injury is a gender specific threat that men face. And indeed, one of the reasons why many more men than women have fled the country. So women tend to be more likely to be internally displaced or to flee to neighboring countries like Jordan. Despite being the most likely targets for forced recruitment, young single men often have particular difficulties in claiming asylum because we don't see them as vulnerable. It's only when we begin to question why we are more willing to accept certain kinds of violence against people of one gender versus another that we can begin to be objective about human rights abuses, accountability, and begin to end impunity. So the criminals in this case were reportedly drunk men. And again, we might be tempted to see them as, you know, boys will be boys, but actually this was a total failure of their immediate commander and employer to assert any kind of effective leadership. When it comes to women, research tells us that we focus on human rights abuses that take place at when, sorry, when it comes to women, research tells us that when we focus on human rights abuses that take place in the line of duty, we tend to overlook how women are affected. So women are actually more at risk from PMC officers when they're off duty. Uh, as we discussed before, women are often trafficked into conflict areas and forced into sex work for the benefit of um, both uh, military and also PMCs. In addition, studies have demonstrated, um, that I've noticed in my work at the Small Arms Survey, um, that while um, PMCs usually regulate how their personal use, personnel use firearms at work to some degree, there have been cases where personnel take their weapon home. 
Uh, and the personnel may claim to do this to protect their families, or perhaps it's easier for them to go to work. But studies have shown that they are far more likely to use their weapon or threaten to use it against their own families. So arming PMC personnel and tolerating abuses and excessive use of force, therefore, increases the likelihood that these personnel commit domestic violence against their own families. So in order to really understand uh, the full scope of impunity, it's important that we apply a gender perspective and understand the different threats faced by women and men. Now I want a little bit to shift the discussion from women being victim, girl and women, and women empowered and working in the private security sector. Unfortunately, during my last decade, when I, I've been interviewing several private military company and private security company, uh, not in the West, but mostly in, uh, in China, I have to say that uh, there was a common trait that sprang from the West to Russia to China and is a very deeply rooted machismo. Most company that I interview, uh, it was basically a pride in showcasing that they have uh, combat-ready personnel, veteran, uh, or even as it happened a lot in China, that their Kung Fu was really good. But having said that, uh, I also managed to, to find women working at managerial level, but most of them uh, have uh, an intelligence background at the time. All the other related jobs for women in my interview, there were mainly clerical positions. So uh, on this, I, I got only one friend that I don't know because I, I just spotted it in 2018, if I recall correct, uh, and I don't know if this is the exception, but uh, in China at the time, uh, in mainland China, there was uh, a great request for combat trained women uh, that provide close protection support, widely known as bodyguard. So a kind of VAP escort uh, for wife, children at school, uh, of course, they blend better than uh, an imposing two-meter tall man. But then at the time, in my opinion, the trend appeared more to be a fashion statement, just to show I'm a rich Chinese, I'm part of an elite, and I have this absolute necessity, something that I don't believe now it's going on, especially after the recent policy for, from President Xi Jinping. Uh, so did you witness this kind of trend uh, growing up in other parts? Uh, and uh, are we going to see finally some women in a position who make an important decision and not just as a fashion statement. Yeah, I think we are beginning to see changes, particularly when we're looking at peacekeepers and also in different militaries and police around the world. I think, first of all, <clears throat> it's important to say that there's nothing wrong with having talented men who are proud of being competent, competent in skills that are considered to be masculine. But the problem is when these men have discriminatory attitudes towards women, and other men. We've already spoken about the fact that men who promote rigid gender norms and have outdated ideas about the role of women uh, also tend to downplay the seriousness of disciplinary offenses and rising es risk, sorry, escalating violent confrontations. Where there are high levels of sexual harassment, there also tends to be a toxic work environment. And the studies we've seen in places like the US is actually that where there's high levels of sexual harassment against women, there tends to be some sexual harassment against men, but also a lot of bullying of men who are considered to be less masculine in that particular company or within the military or police. 
So poor work environments, counterproductive behaviors, breakdowns in discipline and bleeding talent are all bad news for private military and security companies. Um, also, if the most qualified person for a job is a woman, but she turns down working for your company because it has a toxic work culture, not only will you lose her to the competition, actually, you'll have to employ someone less qualified instead. Um, I think it's also often not the case that women within the military and the police have first entered uh, into these roles because of the leader's desire to promote gender equality. Most militaries and police first began recruiting women in order to recruit sufficient numbers of skilled staff. So actually there were labor shortages uh, and that's why they began to open positions to women. But this can still give women an opportunity to demonstrate their capabilities and to normalize the presence. So these things can begin to change over time and we definitely have seen that elsewhere. Of course, it's not fair to burden women with this, companies and governments should ensure that they have equal opportunities to begin with. And I think one other element that we've seen that's been quite interesting uh, with peacekeeping is we've asked different peacekeepers what they see as the most important skills that peacekeepers need to have. And we might consider that because peacekeeping happens in dangerous situations, having conflict abilities, um, being able to use you know, aggression, having, being, having the capability to kill if needed might rank at the top, but actually both male and female peacekeepers said that communication skills with people in the host population was the most important skill that you needed to have. And secondarily, the ability to work with people from other countries was the most important skill that they saw. So often peacekeeping uh, units are mixed. Similarly, private military and security companies have to work with people from different backgrounds. So we can also begin to ask ourselves whether the criteria upon which we're selecting personnel to work in PMSCs really responds uh, to an accurate security needs analysis um, have we really looked at what the, what the security needs of the population are, what, of what the client are, and are we really selecting people on the basis of objective criteria, or are we falling into stereotypical images of what we see as the most talented uh, and competent um, uh, private military security officer that might be based on a kind of image of machismo? So sometimes, actually, when we promote people who've got these kind of matchist attitudes in fact we're not uh, recruiting or deploying the people who've got the skill set that best meets uh, the client's needs yes, that's something uh, that we discovered in the, our last year of uh, boots on the ground podcast uh, is that in the private security sector being uh, a manager empowered to manage crisis and to prevent crisis is far more important than just being good with the Kalashnikov of course, the component of a gated community with machine gun uh, and the promise of violence in case of an attack, it's uh, an important part of security, but it's not the essential part. Communicating with the local community, avoiding uh, cross-cultural problem with the local community, most of the time can solve the problem before uh, you need the use of violence. But then again, as you just mentioned, if your recruiting pool is uh, only a uh, from a source that, for example, is special forces, uh, military, uh, police, and so on, and there are no component in terms of interpreter, cultural mediator, and so on, then uh, you are basically asking for problem. I'm not saying that you don't need special forces, of course, for kidnapping and ransom, a complex environment, you need very skilled operator, but you need a good mix that is not related just to an army. And then also uh, in your report, you underline a very compelling case that uh, 
is gender-based violence. Can you discuss a little bit more in deep detail uh, uh, the economic impact on the local community, as we said, of gender-based violence? And for example, what is the role of the grievance mechanism? Yeah, so gender-based violence, which includes both physical violence and psychological threats, can have a serious effect on the health of individual survivors. This can lead to higher rates of workplace absenteeism, and noting also that the unpaid labor of especially women um, when it comes to household tasks is what allows other members of the family to work full time. So consequently, the financial losses uh, of the limited ability for individuals to participate in the workforce and to be productive when they're there are huge. Um, in Peru, for example, it's estimated that as much as 3.7% of GDP is lost because of gender-based violence. Um, a World Bank report estimated that losses in Vietnam, Bangladesh and Uganda were equivalent to a quarter to a half of the national education budget. So gender-based violence is also intergenerational. Those who both commit or suffer domestic violence um, often witnessed it as children. So then they later replicated their parents' behavior of committing or tolerating abuse. So if, we, if they experience domestic violence or other forms of gender-based violence today, it might be that when they grow up to become adults, the situation is replicated in the future. And we see this chain of gender-based violence being repeated and repeated and repeated throughout history. So PMSCs on their side can also become entangled in expensive legal cases, lose valuable clients, and their own staff can face reprisal attacks, which all affect the company's bottom line if they don't treat gender-based violence seriously and try and prevent it wherever possible. So that's why we need to have grievance processes. Ideally, anyone who is a victim of gender-based violence, whether they contact the police, a hospital, a religious institution, or a civil society organization needs to receive information on how to make a complaint. And that could be through the public sector, through the police, or it could also be a channel that goes directly to a PMSC. In addition, robust internal mechanisms will allow staff to report um, sexist behavior or gender-based violence within the organization when the issue is small before it escalates, as you mentioned before. It's much better for a company to receive information and resolve the problem immediately than to only discover these abuses once they face a class action lawsuit or a reprisal attack. And one final point I'll make on this is that if you receive no complaints as a PMSC, it usually means that the grievance system doesn't work, not that there are no issues. So actually, if you have people who are raising issues through your grievance mechanism, that's a sign that you have a good relationship with the local community and that your grievance system actually works. Yes, that's a point that we were discussing not long ago with Jamie Williams at ICOCA and ICOCA is an important complaining mechanism and the company who received their certification, they need to have this kind of report and that will be good to have it expanded broader to all the private security sector. But now, as we had the broader view, and we mentioned, you mentioned Africa, you mentioned just now Peru, I would like to, to focus in the region that we are studying here at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Uh, in the Middle East, we have seen uh, that the role of women and girls is evolving pretty fast, uh, and, but I'm not referring to the Kino Saudi Arabia allowing women to drive. Uh, we are looking at this evolution, but still not women reaching position of CEO or being a very important part in driving the sector reform. 
What's your experience also in peacekeeping, looking at the Middle East regarding trend and expectations? Yes, yeah, so we might have an impression that um, Western countries are the most advanced on gender equality, but um, if we talk about Africa, we have South Africa, which is um, the country which has amongst the highest female participation in the military in the world, and we've got Rwanda, which is the country with the most women in parliament. And it is true that things have been a bit slower in the Middle East, although we do have examples. Um, we have Major Miriam Al-Mansuri, who is the first female fighter pilot in the United Arab Emirates, and she headed an operation over Syria way back in 2014. Um, Kurdish and Israeli women, of course, have a long history in engaging in frontline conflict that goes back um, into the previous century. Um, when we're looking at peacekeeping, however, I think one country to highlight is Jordan. They've been undertaking concerted efforts to recruit more women uh, and ensure these women get into high-ranking levels within the military in recognition uh, of the diverse skill sets required to respond to the needs of the many Syrian refugees that now live in the country. Um, and they also then have ambitions to train female peacekeepers from the region, given the increased demand for Arabic-speaking and Muslim female peacekeepers. So there is a trend uh, where there are more and more women uh, beginning to become involved in the security sector in the Middle East. And in fact, I was at a very interesting conference at the Kreisky Forum in Vienna, um, where we did have representatives from um, women all over the MENA region, so from places like Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, uh, Jordan, Iraq. Um, so we, we do increasingly see women in these different places becoming involved in the country's military. And I think there is a real recognition um, that you cannot respond to the full gamut of security risks that are uh, being faced in this region without having a diverse workforce where you have women and men working. Thank you. And now I would like to shift the conversation from the Middle East to Singapore, the area where we are now, what I am now. And uh, I truly believe uh, that Singapore have the chance to play uh, a very important role, to be a beacon in terms of regulation for private military security company uh, in the Asian, but not only Asian and Southeast Asia. Now, I mean, here we are all talking about Indo-Pacific, but it's too ambitious to, to frame this kind of regulation from Ottawa to New Delhi. But then in Southeast Asia, I do believe uh, that uh, integrating gender perspective in procurement and contracting can be really important. And uh, in your opinion, what kind of role Singapore could play into this process? Yeah, I agree. I think Singapore is well-placed to become uh, a beacon for well-regulated private military and security companies. I think, first of all, we have to say that if you're going to be part of the international conversation, it would be important that Singapore and ASEAN both sign up to the Montreux document um, and encourage PMSCs based in their countries to join the International Code of Conduct for Private Security Providers. Um, when it comes to gender and spe uh, specifically, I think, of course, it would be great to have some uh, Singaporean gender experts to come and speak on your podcast. Um, but as a start, the three broad areas of uh, Prime Minister uh, Lee Sing Long's white paper on women and equality would also apply uh, in PSC procurement and contracting. Um, I think whenever I try and understand the potential to integrate gender into this into this area, I quite like to use the DCAF NAPRI tool, uh, which you can find in tool 15 of the Gender and Security Toolkit written by Lorraine Serrano. Um, NAPRI is simply an acronym where we look at the needs, access, participation, resources, and impact of any given action. So when we when 
Singapore is contracting private security providers, it could consult with a diverse uh, set of actors from civil society, including women from all different backgrounds, so as to define the security needs that that private security company is going to be asked to address. And the white paper indeed talks about the needs to, to strengthen women's physical and also online security. So that might be an element that we need to look at as well. And there's a whole other uh, tract of research looking at online security threats to women. Um, when it comes to access to the rights and benefits um, that private security contracts can bring, um, the government could evaluate bids on whether the company has policies on gender equality, uh, such as efforts to train and recruit more women, and also to provide a family-friendly work environment for all staff. So we could think about elements such as flexible working hours, paid parental leave, and subsidized childcare. And again, this is in line with the white paper that looked at trying to address the challenge that many women have in balancing pressure to perform well professionally, while also to fulfill um, household tasks that are kind of allocated them based on um, kind of social gender roles. When we look at participation, um, the government could ensure that women are involved in decision-making when it comes to granting security officer licenses, and also in the evaluation uh, monitoring and oversight of the services that are provided by private security companies. So we've talked before about impunity. Um, are we involving different parts of the population in assessing whether the private security company is working fully within the law? Is it actually meeting all of the gendered um, elements of the brief it was given by the government? Um, are we also looking at, for example, whether um, private security officers have a history of committing things like gender-based violence when we're granting them licenses. And um, when we're looking at resources, the government should ensure that any contract and the winning bid allocates human and financial resources on the basis of a gendered security needs assessment. So it's not enough just to say that we recognize that women and men have different needs. It's also important that the resources are allocated in order that everybody has an equal level of security as a result of the intervention by the private security company. And finally, when we look at impact, all PSCs that receive government contracts should have internal or and external complaints procedures that are accessible to women and men. Um, the initial needs assessment should identify any potential negative impacts they might have, such as the risk of gender-based violence, and ensure that the procurement processes contain aspects to mitigate against these risks. And finally, it would be important to regularly consult diverse groups in the society to ensure that they feel safer through the provision of private security. And I think this is particularly interested, interesting in Singapore as a multi-ethnic state where the different parts of the population have different kinds of security needs so I think it does serve to be an excellent role model, both for the region and for the rest of the world. Thank you for your answer. And uh, you just mentioned the online gender-based violence and part of the, our cybersecurity narrative. I'm sure we can talk hour on this, but unfortunately, we are running out of time. We are at the end of our podcast. And I have uh, what we usually call uh, the billion-dollar question. Uh, and is uh, looking at the impact, as you mentioned, uh, I'm asking you the question that we asked to all our guests at the end of the podcast. And if we look at the future of gender integration in the coming 30 years, what you are going to see in 30 years from now, how the private security sector will evolve in this direction? Huh, really interesting question. <clears throat> I, think it, I think it will become increasingly more evident that you do need to have um, diverse staff and a diverse skill set within the uh, private security sector. And I think we will begin to see changes. I think that within the military, we've already recognized that um, warfare is much less 
physical only. We've already seen um, cyber attacks against uh, nation states around the world. Um, we've seen nation states recruiting um, private security companies in the domain of cyber. Um, and we've seen that the kind of people who work in cybersecurity are not the ones that necessarily adhere to this kind of stereotypical uh, macho image. I also think um, we shouldn't play down the fact that uh, elements of um, ideological warfare also contain uh, kind of gendered aspects too. So it might well be that we need to work on protecting uh, the ability of women and men from different groups to express themselves online and private military and security companies might become involved in these kinds of things. So I think we're going to, to see increasingly complex, increasingly hybrid forms of insecurity. And these are exactly the kinds of insecurity that need to have a diverse skill set where you have all different groups of uh, women, men, gender minorities serving in the organization. And if you don't take the needs of these different groups seriously, then you're going to have gaps in your security policy. Hello, I have to thank you very much for being with us today and to thank our audience for following Boots of the Ground. And we are looking forward to receive your question at our email and be with us with the next episode. Thank you again and have a great day. Thank you very much.